0: Coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap, find out about the hospital that accidentally took advantage of free encryption, the malware that accidentally targeted the root DNS servers, and the password test you never want to take. Plus, a great batch of your networking questions, our answers, a packed roundup, and much, much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. Hi everyone, and welcome to TechSnap. This is episode 261 of Jupiter Broadcasting's Weekly Systems Network and Administration Podcast. We stream this episode live on March 31st, 2016. This episode is brought to you by our three fine sponsors: DigitalOcean, Ting, and IX Systems. I'll tell you more about those great sponsors as this year show goes on. Our live stream, why? That's powered by the incredible Scale Engine over at ScaleEngine.com. You should really go check that out. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week is our host, the Admin, the Tech. And the teacher, Mr. Alan Jude. Hello there, Alan. Hello, Chris. Hello. <laughs> <watching>. <laughs> Hello from all the way over there, Alan. Hello. Uh, I'm pretty excited about today's show because uh, this first story, when I was reading it ahead of time, I was like, oh, this is going to be – whenever it comes down to something that's critical to the infrastructure of the Internet, it always gets my attention because that's like big picture stuff, which is where we start out this week. we got a packed yes. show, so why don't we jump right in. Tell me about this uh, VeriSign investigation.
1: Right. So VeriSign uh, runs two of the 13 critical root DNS servers. Uh, and so they were doing an investigation into a denial of service attack that happened in November of 2015 that appeared to actually target the root DNS servers. Uh, it didn't really take anything down, although in some smaller regions there was enough attack traffic that it overwhelmed the server in that region. So people had some transient problems there, but it didn't manage to take out any of the big servers. Um, but anyway, they're giving a talk at an upcoming conference detailing their investigation. And they have a, a post up here that we can get some details yeah. from ahead of
0: that. They, uh, they have a, a, I'll roll a little bit of this
1: cause they explain a lot in here. So here, I'll hit play. Yeah.
2: This is a visualization of anomalous traffic sent to a.rootservers.net on November 30th, 2015. VeriSign also operates j.rootservers.net, which received the same type of anomalous traffic. In the window here, you see a large square on the left side subdivided into smaller squares. This is a Hilbert curve representation of the IPv4 address space. The Hilbert curve is a fractal space-filling curve and is a very convenient way to visualize IP address space, as first popularized by the XKCD comic. It has the nice property of preserving adjacency at any scale. Here the labels in each small square show the number of the first IPv4 octet, and if you follow them in order, you get the path of the Hilbert curve. Soon I'll start the data replay, and you'll see some colored dots appear. Each hmm. dot represents 1 slash 16, and the color of the dot indicates how many queries were received with a source address in that slash 16. Blue is low count values, starting at just 1, and red is high counts. Okay. The counts are stored as 8-bit values, so red is 255 or greater. This visualization is often referred to as an IP address heat map. Here we go. So almost instantly we see blue dots filling the left side of the map. This is the first half of the IPv4 address space. Note there are some empty spots. 0 slash 8, 10 slash Mm 8, and 127 127. slash 8. These are all special or reserved address blocks. It seems likely that the attacker is generating queries with these source addresses. However, these reserved address blocks are filtered out before reaching our servers. The 128 net block stands out as interesting. Hmm. It is the only slash 8 in the right half of the map mm-hmm. to receive significant traffic. Mm-hmm. My guess is that this is a less than equals versus less than error on the part of the programmer. Oh. Like you didn't actually mean to use zoom that. Zoom the playbook now and keep your eye on the 2 net block here. Here. Mm-hmm. Now you I see a lot of that. activity nice happening in cut. this area. It is quickly being filled with red, here I can zoom indicating out. at least 255 queries per slash 16. <laughs> But what's particularly notable is that we're seeing these source addresses essentially in order. It may look sort of wandering and random, but this is the nature of the Hilbert curve. The spoofed sources are being generated more or less sequentially. Huh. So when the bad guys are doing the attack, and they were spoofing no
1: each address in order hmm. through every possible IP address, starting at two zero zero zero.
0: This heat map really makes that <clears throat> very easy to picture. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, that's really neat. GL heat map is what he's using.
1: Yeah, and then uh, if you go further into the video, you can see, uh, eventually, you can see there's two different groups of, of this botnet going at different speeds. So there's, like, one's going up in front, and then the second one starts up behind and isn't going as fast. And it goes through all the different stuff. Um, what, uh, the other interesting thing was to learn that uh, Randall Monroe from XKCD uh, popularized the best way to actually visualize data about the IP addresses. Hmm. <laughs> it's like he probably came up with it just <laughs> for the comic, but it turns out, scientifically, this is the best way to do it. <laughs> huh. You know, XKCD is, is very influential. It is really something how often yeah. XKCD comes up in our coverage. <laughs> well, not just ours, but all over the place. And it, it's more that it's just, you know, because it's, it's, not, it's not just a comic. It's based on all the math and science. Mm-hmm. And it actually makes sense. Yes, him. exactly. Or you remember, like, you remember, like, the XKCD color survey? Yes, that was awesome uh, yeah, I think that's
0: exactly I think you nailed it it's because they're they're really clever people running it
1: yep uh, but yeah it's, it's not clear why a larger set of addresses wasn't used like why the whole second half of the net of, of the IP space was never used although because the attack targeted uh, so the other thing we didn't talk about yet is that uh, the attack wasn't actually targeted on the root DNS servers it was a DNS reflection attack against two domains in China oh yeah and just happen to have this negative impact on the root DNS service. Oh. Oh, that's even uh, that's even in some ways even more fascinating. Yes. Um, and part of the reason they only use the lower IP space is that most of the higher, I sp- uh, almost all IP space in China comes from the higher half. Mm. And that might have been part of the reason. Although when you actually fast forward through this, they don't seem to actually ever go higher than the slash 19 or the 19 slash 8 uh, net block as you actually watch the uh, the bits go through as you uh, after attempt after attempt, um, the other interesting thing is that I uh, so here you can see where it's running at two different speeds. So the one button mm-hmm. has started in the middle of four, yes. and the other one started in the middle of six. Yeah. Although, and you can see how there's some green, and it's not all perfectly red. The uh, the the forward one isn't doing quite as many packets. Right, but, but, but the slower one, the slower one, seems to be getting better results. Or well, uh, doing more packets. Yeah. Yeah. So the the slower one is attacking harder, but the S- the faster one is, is more cycling through the addresses faster. Mm-hmm. And so then as he changes the scale and zooms out a bit, and then you can watch it do it again. Huh. But watch the one, in the it's currently in the 9, and now it just disappeared. Yeah. But it, what it's actually doing is it's walking through the whole 10 block, but that traffic never gets to the internet because it's an internal address. Uh-huh. And then you can see it resumes in the 11. Yeah, so it shoots through that entire 10 block in that time. Yeah, so the programmer didn't bother making an exception saying, hey, just skip all of the 10s. It, so it causes actual delay in the attack. <laughs> uh, where the so
0: it's it's in there. It's in there. Well, I guess it, it's generating all these packets yeah. that are getting dropped like, at <laughs> the <over>. local
1: routers. <laughs> yeah. Okay. But yeah, and then the other funny thing is when the attack gets up to the to 19, it stops and and starts over again at two. So that's interesting. Uh, yeah, and the delay uh, before it gets to the 11 block is it. Actually runs through the whole ten block, even though the packets never get anywhere. Uh, the researchers also note that they used a response rate limiting, which is basically a technology that says um, to help mitigate the problems with spoofing, uh, we send we limit the number of results we send to each different IP address so that you know one particular IP address that is the target of an attack uh, won't have too many answers sent to it so that it doesn't get completely flooded. Uh, helping mitigate these on um, you know public resolvers where you can't just lock down who's allowed to do resolving. <clears throat> they say that uh, the response rate limiting was an effective mitigation encountering up to 60% of the attack traffic, but response rate limiting uh, can't do everything. Hmm. Uh, in addition to the response rate limiting, the researchers said <coughs> attack traffic was easily filterable because they were going through each IP address individually in order. Um, and they could filter that and drop the attack traffic, but... Uh, and leave the normal traffic untouched, uh, but the limitation was that it was a manual process, and so it couldn't quite be automated the same. Because, hmm. <clears throat> you know, you wouldn't want to get a false positive pattern of, you know, a couple of IP addresses in a row make a request, and then you start blocking things. But, hmm. yeah. Uh, anyway, it's definitely worth checking out the rest of that video to see what's up. It's only about six minutes long. Yeah, so that, cool. it is really nice.
0: Uh, I love that. That's a great way to visualize it. Uh, for mm-hmm. For such a large-scale attack like that? Yeah. Yeah, pretty cool, pretty cool stuff to see. the. And so I guess uh, uh, that's actually on the official uh, Vera VeriSign uh, YouTube channel, and we have uh, that linked in the article that's linked in our show notes if you want to yes, watch the
1: full. yeah. Uh, because I think the um, the conference that we're going to have is in, like, South America, like, uh, Argentina ah. or something, and so uh, it'll be, you know, not something you can just go to easily because it's mm-hmm.
2: uh, far, uh, but, far you know, away.
1: DNS is is everywhere, so VeriSign uh, has their conferences all over the place.
0: So let's talk a moment. Let's take a moment, unless there's any other thoughts on that. Nope. nope. All right, then I will mention Ting. Go to techsnap.ting.com to support this show and get yourself a great deal. $25 off your first device, or if you have a Ting-compatible device, and you might, because they got CDMA and GSM network, so you might have a compatible device already. You'll get $25 in your Ting account. Boom. Boom! Just for you. Yeah, you can call and speak to a human when you need help. They have really good customer service. They have a fantastic online dashboard. I love the thing dashboard. You can turn devices on and off. And they have a great range of devices. From starting at $9 SIM cards, you can pop anything you want. Amazon Primeable, $47 feature phones. The LG Volt 2, $66 Android phone, getting Marshmallow soon. The LG Tribute is also a great phone. The Antitel OneTouch. The Nexus line, the iPhone line, they have the entire range over at Ting, and you only pay for what you use, your minutes, your messages, and your megabytes. They add them all up with your unlocked phone, and that's all you owe. No contract, no early termination, and like I said, you get to choose the network. It's powerful. And check this out. They're doing a One plus 2. Isn't that a funny name? Yeah. They're doing a One plus 2 giveaway. You can find out more on the uh, Ting blog. Uh, They talk about things like the uh, dual-SIM design, USB-C charger, up to 4 gigabytes of RAM. Holy smokes. You can buy that from Ting right now, or you can find out about the Ting giveaway. They have information on their blog. Start by going to techsnap.ting.com. Go there. Learn more about Ting. Maybe try out their savings calculator. See how much you might actually save. And then head over to their blog to find out about the giveaway. techsnap.ting.com. Big thank you to Ting for sponsoring the TechSnap program. Okay, Alan, are you ready for this? Yep. It's like the new string, I think. This is the new trend. I have been reading story after story about hospitals and ransomware or malware. It's like they're getting targeted like crazy right now. My spider sense tells me that p- might be what our next topic is about. Yes. <laughs> okay.
1: Uh, yeah, and, and I'll talk a little bit about why that is, too. Hmm, okay. uh, but yes, so the MedStar Hospital Network, which is very big over on the East Coast, uh, was hit with a virus, and uh, were forced to shut down a bunch of their computers to prevent it spreading. So they say the uh, the health system took down uh, some of its computers to prevent the virus from spreading. But it's not clear exactly how many computers or hospitals were affected mm. initially. That's rough. Updated story going forward.
0: You know, you get uh, you get the malware, it takes your systems offline, and then for to, for preventative reasons, you take more systems offline, which is, yep. yeah. That's that's uh, a
1: statement by the health system said that all facilities remain open and that there was no evidence of compromised information. So the ransomware, uh, you know, nobody was stealing patient data or anything. It was just uh, encrypting data and holding for ransom. Uh, so the not for not for profit uh, healthcare system operates ten hospitals across the Washington D C and Baltimore region, uh, with more than a uh, hundred outpatient uh, healthcare facilities. And uh, the health system has about 31,000 employees Mm. and several hundreds of thousands of patients annually. All right. So, you know, a big hospital network. Yeah. So, you know, maybe they should have better IT. (laughs) Uh, One visitor to the hospital told ZDNet that staff switched the computers off after learning about the virus. Uh, So it sounds like maybe uh, they had prepped, uh, you know, because of the news of hitting other hospitals, they had a procedure in place. So it's like as soon as we hear about a crypto virus hitting, everybody right. turn their computer off. Scramble. Yeah, uh, the person who was visiting a patient, one of the healthcare systems, Washington D.C. hospitals, said the computers were powered off for more than an hour, with all patient orders lost uh, for you know things that had been entered in but not actually done yet. Uh, so like maybe things had to be redone, or you know. Uh, Doctor orders certain thing to be done. It goes in the computer. they turn the computer off and mm-hmm. it's not written down. That that still needs to be done kind of thing mm-hmm. until the computer comes back on. Uh, they say, it's not clear exactly what kind of malware was used in the uh, cyber attack that happened on Monday. A uh, spokesperson for the MedStar Health uh, did not immediately respond to requests for comments. Uh, An FBI spokesman confirmed that they are aware of the incident and are looking into the nature and scope of it. So then ThreatPost had a follow-up post uh, which... It uh, was from Wednesday, so it was a couple of days later. They say the healthcare provider said the attack forced it to shut down its three main clinical information systems, which prevented staff from reviewing patient medical records, uh, barred patients from making uh, new appointments, and, in, uh, and they said that on Wednesday and said that uh, no patient data has been compromised and the systems are slowly coming back online. Specifically, they say clinicians are now able to review medical records and submit orders via their electronic health record system. Uh, restoration of additional clinical systems continues with priority given to those related directly to patient care. Mm-hmm. They say while the hospital still won't officially confirm the attack was ransomware related, the Washington Post along with other news outlets are reporting that employees at the hospital receive pop-up messages on their computer screens seeking payment of 45 bitcoins, which is almost $20,000, uh, in exchange for a digital key to decrypt their data. Holy smokes. Holy smokes. <clears throat> the MedStar cyber attack is one in, of many hospitals in recent months targeted by hackers. Last week, the Kentucky based uh, Methodist Hospital paid ransomware attackers to unlock its health systems after the crypto, ran- uh, crypto ransomware brought the hospital's operations to a grinding halt. Hmm. Earlier this year, the Los Angeles uh, Presbyterian Medical Center paid 40 bitcoins. Uh, which at the time was about $17,000, two attackers that locked down access to the hospital's electronic medical record systems and other computer systems using the crypto ransomware. And I think that it's pretty obvious now that as long as hospitals continue to pay out these ransoms, they're going to continue to be targeted very hard. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they, they so they get, traditionally have such crappy uh, upgrade cycles in their infrastructure that there's almost... Yeah, like XP everywhere. It's like, how do we get something that, you know... Although... That's for for the access machines, maybe sure, but you would hope the medical records are stored on something a little more solid, where you yeah. could maybe have a copy I, on the right file system. But your client snapshots. machines
0: are always going to be your weak link, right?
1: Uh, well, yes, no, like Run yes, an XP, connecting to a server, you get a, yes, you if that get crypto ransomware, then you can't. Uh, if it access can access a network share or whatever. I mean, but yeah. the actual health records should be stored somewhere where they're not going to get crypto ransomware right. very easily. Maybe like in a SQL database or something? Well, the SQL database <laughs> on a machine that's not going to get yeah. Yeah. crypto ransomware. Yeah, yeah. I follow you. Yeah. But I don't, I don't know Just how to do Just food for thought. Just a you know,
0: little tech snap advice.
1: Uh, I know that when there was a project at the college where I was to design a system for electronic health records part of the requirement was that it would run on the computers the hospital already had so it had, they wrote it in Java so it would work on Solaris, Linux, or Windows. Hmm. Not that Java is the best solution to anything but in that particular case it seemed to make sense. Yeah, well, of course. uh, Medical facilities don't give security the same type of attention that other types of companies do Uh, which is Craig Williams who's a senior tech leader at uh, Cisco Talos which is a vulnerability research type place. Um, They are there to heal people and cure the sick. Their first priority is not to take care of their IT environment. As a result, it's likely that hackers have been out there for quite some time and realize that there's a lot of healthcare sites that have a lot of vulnerabilities and are willing to pay if you can ransom them. Yeah, that's not going to be... I don't see this slowing down anytime soon.
0: No, and the devices on these networks that these hospitals run,
1: they're in a horrible state. Yep, and, uh, you know... So far, they're only attacking, you know, the computers. But, you know, if they start uh, disabling, you know, some of the more appliance type things, like the dispensary type stuff, it can get pretty nasty. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so speaking of that, ThreatPost has another, uh, and the computer world have uh, a couple of links here. Mm. Uh, 1,418 remotely exploitable flaws in the medical supply system will remain unpatched. a lot of flaws mm-hmm. yeah. yeah an no attacker biggie. with low skill levels will be able to exploit this says cert <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh good <laughs>
1: yeah. so uh, and then in related news uh, I saw one here from the Malwarebytes blog uh, and they picked out a you know uh, if you scroll down a little bit to the picture pick out a particular hospital to pick on happens to be the one from my hometown no <laughs> Well, not my hometown is too small to have a hospital, but the closest hospital. Yeah, right. Yeah, the one you go the to. hospital where I was born and everything. <laughs> um, so yes, the Norfolk General Hospital has a website where they just have you know information for visitors and so on, right? Uh, and it's a Joomla blog because that's what people use to design websites, mm-hmm. right? Except for it's a Joomla version five or two dot five <laughs> dot six, <laughs> whereas uh, well, the most Joomla? recent version is three dot four dot eight. And it has a huge number of known vulnerabilities, and somebody went so far as to install the Angler malware kit on it. You know, that's that's some pretty high-end malware there. Angler. Yeah, I remember Angler. Yep, that's hmm. the Angler exploit kit. <laughs> so say, like many sites, this injection is conditional and will only appear once for a particular IP address. For instance, when the site administrator often visits the page, they won't end up getting uh, seeing the malware. But when a new person goes to the page first time, drive by a malware and their system is compromised. So the obvious targets were obviously, you know, staff going to the website. Maybe there's something there for them. Patients and the families of patients and visitors for those patients, but also students because that, that hospital became a teaching facility for the McMaster University uh, Faculty of Health Sciences back in 2009. So, you know, there could be a, a, a learning management system and a bunch of other stuff like that on the website as well. Hmm. They say, uh, the particular strain of malware dropped here used uh, TeslaCrypt and demands a $500 uh, ransom to recover your files. So while this is ransomware in a hospital, it wasn't actually targeting the hospital, but people that went to the hospital's website. Although it's not clear that it was targeted specifically because it was a hospital or if it was Mm. just they infected every old Joomla Hmm. they could get Mm -hmm. their hands on. Uh, Yeah, right,
0: which might be the case.
1: Yeah. But yeah, still, uh, pretty crazy. (laughs) That one, that one hits a little close to home.
0: Yeah, I've been getting a lot of those on this show, so it's only fair. It's only time. It, it, it is. I think it's your turn. Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, then uh, let's take a moment, and uh, you know what? Let's roll up our sleeves. Come on, Alan. We got it. You, you, you don't have sleeves, do you? All right. Well, I'm gonna roll up my sleeves right here, right now, and I'm gonna talk about getting work done with IX Systems. There you go. ixsystemscom techsnap. They are gonna build a system for you for your ultimate workload, and I, I mean every kind of system you can imagine, from something that could be running on like an Intel Atom processor all the way up to the big boys with tons of cores and lots of
1: disk space and more RAM yeah. than I can imagine. <laughs> do you want, do you want an E3? Do you want an E3 with a video card? Do you oh, want E5? Yeah. Do you yes. want yes, Two E5. Yes. Do you want yes. Four. Okay, okay, like some E7s. Yeah,
0: and you know what's great <laughs> about IX is uh, they not only have the experience to really actually know how to build this for you in a way that's going to be sustainable and work great,
1: but they do burn-in testing, they're going to ship yes, it, they're, they're going to have- burn-in testing. Well, yeah, so it's... I actually, it actually found a problem this time. Oh, really? So I had a server, they were building for me, uh, the last one of these uh, video servers. Yes, uh, And during the burn-in testing, one of the hard drives failed. Because you know, as as (sighs) Google research has shown, if a hard drive is gonna fail, it's when it does. most of the time, it's within the first 24 hours Mm -hmm. or so. Mm -hmm. That's why IX burns in your server for three days first, and they're like, "Oh, yep, yep, we had to replace the drive in that one for you." Yeah, yeah. It's like, well, I'm very glad I didn't get that machine shipped all the way to a data center. Paid to get it all racked. Turns yeah. on. Yeah. A couple hours later, yeah. hard drive's dead. It's like now I have to pay somebody to pull that hard drive out and ship it back to and, and You know,
0: they'll, they'll I, I, the thing is, Alan is IX has been in this game long enough where they figured out all those little rough edges and they just smooth them out uh, in 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 every aspect of it, and that's that's why I think
1: that is maybe that the, the other thing is because they're going to ship the server directly to the data center for me, yeah. which is not in the same country as me. Exactly. Um, they they will go so far, you know. When you order their server, you get this little worksheet, and you fill yeah. I'd like this OS installed on it, and configure these bio settings this way, and and set up the IPMI this way, and mm-hmm. and just. I think what it's like. Put a big sticker pointing at which Ethernet port is the one with the IP address set up so that when the tech at the data center plugs the Ethernet cable into one of the four Ethernet ports, he does he picks the right one. Yeah. Now, okay, so take that and just that's what I'm talking about, right?
0: That's, that's where they close the gap and they make it from something that is just sort of nice to have to something that's incomparable. And it's like that at every stage of the process, from the pre-purchase beginning all the way to the very end.
1: Yes. You know, even I have servers from that are like two years old and... You know, they still help me with that. Yeah, that's Uh, really cool. Yeah, and my Nas Mini
0: is rocking like a champ still. And just in time, too, because the word is the XL is coming. I'm really excited. I'm really excited. I'm. Go- I know you know the details, and you won't tell me yet because we're
1: recording. It's embargoed. Here. I can't. Embargo.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but you guys will know soon. Check it out at the IX Systems website. I'm sure we'll be talking about it in the future.
1: iXsystems.com. Yesterday's BSD Now which should come out around the time you're watching this. Yeah. Or yesterday, maybe even because it's pre- it won't be pre recorded though. So yes, it'll come out at the time you're watching this. It might be, maybe would have some information. Maybe. Maybe, maybe you would have exact know. information you might be wanting to
0: know. iexceptence dot com slash TechSnap. Thanks, mm-hmm. IX for sponsoring the TechSnap program. Yes. Okay, so I, you know, speaking of close to home, isn't this next story also kind of at least in your country, from yeah. your country? Uh, where is the uh, c- oh, CNBC? I read that as uh, the uh, Canadian. Bur- CB- yeah, It yeah. no, so, wasn't nope. CBS. Damn it. I thought I had you for two stories nope, this week. Nope, Back nope. to the States we go. This is an embarrassment, Alan. Tell us what happened.
1: So uh, CNBC did a little post uh, about uh, Apple and the construction of secure passwords, it was called originally. Mm, uh, right and in the they head. had a little box where you type in your password, and it tells you how long it would take to crack. Oh, jeez along with the problem that their math was bogus and it would tell you a really long time for passwords that were not all that complex. Turns out, A, the site is over HTTP, not HTTPS, which makes perfect sense for a new site because you don't normally submit anything secure to it. But it was that. And it looked like it was submitting it as a get variable too. <laughs> so it would go in the URL. No. Then it would be in the referer string. No. Uh, so yeah, so you're Idiots. submitting your password in plain text to the CNBC website, which is a bad idea. But because of the way they did it, it was in the refer. So then it also got sent to DoubleClick, Scorecard <sighs> Research, uh, something hosted on Amazon AWS. It's unclear what it was. Uh, the widgets on the site, like Facebook and Gigya. Oh Google, no, no, uh, no! Every every ad and everything else on the website got a copy of your password sent to it. For each time you type your new password. Plus, if you're at, uh, if you're behind like a proxy server or something at your company. Yep, that too. Uh, worse. It was originally—it's very early in the page before they got some complaints. It, they were saving all the passwords submitted into a Google spreadsheet. No, Probably Alan. Do a follow-up story no, about Alan. It, saying, "Oh, you know, this many people put the password like one, two, three, four, five, or whatever, right?" But yes, it looks like originally They're they were nuts. submitting them to a Google spreadsheet. Yeah. So. Yeah. So if you were actually trying to build a tool like this. Maybe use JavaScript and process the password on the user's browser or, so, and not actually submit it over yeah. the network to anything. Because, uh, yeah, do it on the user's device, never transmit the password. Of course, the user should never type their password into some random website. This is the definition of phishing. CNBC just fished your password from you. Yeah, here it the is the news right here.
0: article. Yeah. <laughs> this- no passwords are being stored. So that was after they changed That was the... after
1: they removed the uh, Google Doc thing. Wow. But yes, uh, you just gave your password to CNBC. Who knows maybe your email address from something. And, um, you know, how long is it going to take somebody to guess that you use that same password for your email? Or like look at the pattern and see that, oh, you put CNBC at the end of your password because that's the website it was? Well, I'll just switch that to Gmail. And, oh, yep, that's your password for Gmail. Just terrible things like that. Uh, so, yeah, the page has since been removed from their website. Yeah, uh, I noticed. Uh, for a while, it still came up in the search results on their site, but then was a 404 oh, anyway. Oh, brilliant. But, just you know, brilliant. Proof that it used to actually be there. But, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, PC World has some extra coverage on it, but it's just... Nobody should ever type their password into not that website. Obviously, I mean, you should have a different password for each website.
0: Um, this is, I mean, not really related, but it's kind of it is kind of also additionally funny when you consider now that Comcast owns NBC. So uh, Comcast, you think would be out there educating their subsidiaries about the importance <laughs> of passwords and privacy and keeping yeah, well, them
1: secret? you know some some. Junior, you know, internet correspondent for CNBC thought this would be a great idea.
0: (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) I'm trying to think, like, there are sites that, you know, I mean, so one point you made that I might, I, I don't know. I mean, you said, you know, do this with JavaScript, but essentially don't enter your password into sites. What about, like, sites that check, you know? Do you think there could be a, an example where, engine, like, I don't know, sites that check your password for complexity or, or if it's been in a database somewhere or something well, like that?
1: Like, Well, obviously, for the ones that check if it's in a database, but you should only be checking the Ye- old password after you've already changed it. That's a good point. Yeah, right? okay. All right. You, I'll buy that. You never that. want to type your password that's actually still used for anything into Brilliant. any website that's not the that's, one it's used for. That's right?
0: genomicus. Yeah, of course. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, so go change it first. And then, yeah, and then you can try
1: your old passwords <laughs> if you really want, but just to see what damage I'd, has been done. Oh. <laughs> Generally, you know, there's maybe a, there's a password strength meter on the website when you're setting the password, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, but yeah. if you go to some third website and type in your password to see if it's secure or not, well, that site now knows your password, so it's not secure anymore because somebody else knows it, so better pick a different one. <laughs>
0: Interesting, Alan. Well, cool. You know, I it's, a good one.
1: it's like I'm going to make an app like that for Android and charge people money to steal their passwords. Just like a, a tool for on your phone or whatever, and you type in your password and it tells you if it's secure or not. And in the end, it's just like, well, that one was fairly secure, but I know it now, so it's not secure anymore. Yeah, you should make yeah. a different one. Mm-hmm. No matter what you type into it, and just confuse <laughs> the hell out of people. Charge $5 for it. <laughs>
0: That is an embarrassment, and it's funny because when I saw it in the doc, I thought, "Oh, those Canadian broadcasters." Nope. No. I forget what the C in that one stands for. And uh, you know, it's also uh, uh, for, it's the it's their
1: financial stuff.
0: It's yes, like their. So I don't know
1: where the C comes from.
0: Um, mm, you in the chat room? No, we should. Right, we
1: and the political ones, MSNBC, but that was because yeah. recently it was a partnership with Microsoft. Yes, yes. I don't uh, know if that's still actually a partnership. I don't think so. But. Uh, I don't know where the C for, you know, you know, I guess FNBC would probably have the wrong connotation, right?
0: In the, in the traditional sense of it being a phishing attack, too, which I just find this to be kind of funny, too, is they were jacking, right? They were jacking the FBI iPhone story to get people to be interested in their story, yep. which is something else a phishing scam would do. <laughs> so perfect. They're so—I don't want to be just, mean, but they were really not thinking this through. Uh, okay, any other thoughts on that story, Alan? Nope. All right, well, then I will mention DigitalOcean and use our promo code SNAPOcean, one word, lowercase, over there to get yourself a $10 credit. DigitalOcean is a simple cloud hosting provider dedicated to offering the most intuitive and easy way for you to spin up your own cloud server. You can get started in less than 55 seconds, and pricing— Starts at $5 a month. For $5 a month, you're going to get 512 megabytes of RAM. That's right! They got all SSDs, so you're going to get a 20-gigabyte SSD. Oh, oh, oh! And ooh, get this, a terabyte! I said a terabyte! (laughs) A terabyte of transfer on the $5 rig. Yeah, it is, Alan. And their pricing structure is so simple and straightforward. And in each tier, you get more bandwidth transfer. It's nuts. And they have good 40 gigabit E connectors into these hypervisors, so you're going to get great transfer. It saturates my download here on my Comcast connection. I have 100 megabits down, it's awesome. Now, of course, that's you know Comcast, but they just, what I'm syncing from my own cloud, it's, or sync thing, saturates the connection. They have a very simple, awesome, intuitive interface that's very, it's awesome. It's very easy for you to use, and it's, it's very powerful. Awesome, it's It's awesome, that's my Australian, it's awesome. It's really awesome, it's really fantastic. Uh, and they have a great straightforward API you can take advantage of with lots of nice tools already built around. So use our promo code SnapOcean and go spin up a rig right now. Here's an example of some tools, too. How about this one? DOCTL, the command line interface to yeah. digital Ocean. A command line
1: tool to use the API to do stuff.
0: Yeah, exactly. They're using their uh, version 2 of their API, and uh, so they have it themselves. Look at that. This is so cool. You can go, look at this, it's a full-on, you can, you, it's just, look at this, look, uh, uh, doctl, compute droplet, list in region New York, and output to JSON. That is slick. Of course, they got data centers in San Francisco, Singapore, Amsterdam, London, Germany, Toronto, and a new one in India as well. Look at that, compute SSH. This is really cool, and oh, it's written in Go. It's completely open source and available on GitHub as well. Check it out. DA, D-O-C-T-L. One of the really cool tools that's based on the API. Lots of other really nice open source code you can take advantage of, too. Yep. DigitalOcean.com. Use the promo code SnapOcean. Mm-hmm. And a big thank you to DigitalOcean for sponsoring the TechSnap program. All right, so you heard Alan just mention it a moment ago. Go download this week's episode of the BSD Now program to find out more about the free NAS and all of the other BSD Now shenanigans. Check the calendar for our live times at jupiterbroadcasting.com. slash calendar. But with the news all done, it means it's time for the TechSnap feedback. sending your emails to techsnap at Broadcasting.com or pop in that contact link at the top of our website or even better a thread in that subreddit over at techsnap.reddit.com. Ryan's got our first email again this week. Hey, look at that, Ryan. Thank you very much for emailing in with some more great questions. Ryan writes, watch out. It's a PFSense question alert. In fact, it's a bit of a networking theme this week. I've been running a PFSense firewall for over 10 years. I keep an eye on it with Nagios. Just recently, Nagios has been warning me that the PFSense system has over 150 processes running. It usually happens about after 15 days of uptime. I don't see any zombie processes in top. However, in the web GUI system activity, I do see a bunch of user local bin php-f user local package entries. Is this a misbehaving package? Where should I start looking to see why there's so many and why they grow over time? That's
1: question number one. Right. Uh, So in top, looking at the zombie number is not that helpful. You might actually, uh, from the command, just run like PS, you know, AUX, WW, or something like that, and you get a full list of all the processes that are running and see if there's any that are suspicious or if there are, you know, 20 copies of one specific one, then that might be your thing? Because I don't know if that system activity log is just showing that that command is being run every so often or yeah. if there's actually that many. I mean, it's running package, running. right? I mean, it makes me think maybe it's like one of the, like the back end updates. Yep, yeah, because well, it's running PHP to run some script. So I don't yeah. know in particular. My thought if it's using PHP, that's probably something from the
0: web admin, like a plugin updater that's running yeah. in the background and that's failing. And because you have mm-hmm. such an old installation, maybe it's just failing because the package isn't being Well, I doubt it's, he's using a 10 year old installation. No, I installation know. But, it, of PFS <laughs> but if it is an older installation, Right. Uh, OK, so part two of the question. Uh, To enhance uh, publicly-facing SSH servers, I've added Google's two-factor auth to the already required password and PKI. While this is great, it seems a bit excessive. Instead, I thought it would be a good idea to try a tiered approach. If I connected and presented a key and a password, it would let me in. But if I didn't present a key, the server would ask for my password and then the Google Auth token. Is that possible? If so, any advice on how to maybe do something this the right way? Thanks for all the great shows. Feel free to split it up if you need to. Oh, great. <laughs>
2: um,
1: I think something like that is possible. Uh, I don't know off the top of my head. Uh, luckily, the person we interviewed last week on BSD Now is writing a book about how to do things with Pam, and I'm sure this question would be great for him if he hasn't already written a chapter on how to do it. Yeah, things. I would think so. I think that would be the way to do it. I, will, I might look into that in the future, because that's a really what great a idea. copy and paste this question... To the author of the PAN book to make sure that the PAN book includes the answer to this question. There
0: you go. There you go. All right, Gordon writes in with our next one. Hello, Alan and Chris. Thanks for answering my question in a previous episode. Today I have a VPN related question. What are the major differences between OpenVPN and IPSec VPNs? Can you briefly explain how each one works and what the advantages are? OpenVPN has progressed a lot since the beginning, but we still don't see much commercial usage versus IPSec. Keep up the tech snap uptime going and please re release the Patch Your S shirt. I want one badly. Take care.
1: Okay, so OpenVPN uses SSL and is basically a program you can install on any computer and has that advantages. But it's not technically an open standard. IPsec is a standard, uh, and the big thing is that the client is built into Windows and most other operating systems, so it means that you don't hmm. have to install special software to use it. True. Although there are some IPsec VPNs that use special software, mm-hmm. like Cisco's craziness. Uh, but the general idea with IPsec was that you would be able to connect with the built-in thing in your OS and not need to install some special software, which can be really annoying when you want to just access, uh, your VPN from anywhere. Um, so OpenVPN happens to be a program you can download and they have a version for like every operating system, even Android, and it works fairly well. Uh, but yes, it's less standard. So if you're having to connect to a fancy proprietary firewall, you probably have to use IPSec. If you're doing something like a PFSense, you have the option of doing something like IPsec or just doing something easier and faster like OpenVPN. Uh, in the end, there are some advantages and disadvantages to each. IPsec uh, can be harder to get through firewalls and sometimes support isn't great uh, depending on like, how complicated your network setup is. Whereas because OpenVPN is just connecting to a port number with a TCP or UDP socket, it's a little more straightforward. Uh, but IPsec has some extra features. Kind of a trade-off, either way.
0: Uh, thank you, sir. All right. Corey writes in about leaky DNS. Hmm, leaky DNS. Mm-hmm. Hi, Chris and Alan. Each week, I look forward to listening to more interesting and more and more interesting information and insights from TechSnap. Thank you. I use a VPN for privacy and security when I'm on public Wi-Fi. But here's my first question: How do I make sure it's configured properly and not
1: leaking my DNS queries? Our site so, uh, le- to start that at the beginning. Um, generally, what happens? What a DNS leak happens is basically you while you're writing your traffic over the VPN, uh your DNS queries, uh if, if your VPN is only set up to say access the stuff of your house and it just provides a subnet like to a route. your LAN. Uh, yeah. yeah. Then if you're trying to do DNS, you're probably going to use the DNS servers provided by DHCP uh from the the public Wi-Fi place, and you're going to do the DNS request through them and then Maybe or or maybe not do the connection to the website after you look it up through the VPN, and then you know people listening on the Wi-Fi maybe can see what sites you're trying to visit by watching your DNS lookups. So then there's sites like IP Leak and DNS uh, Leak Test that can help you try to determine. Yeah, that. so they're really so they're not a hundred percent, but they're probably a good enough indication. The
0: Second part of this question, you kind of just answered. So if my DNS is not properly routed over the VPN, can't Wi-Fi administrators and ISPs essentially man in middle me or at least see where I'm going? Even so the VPNs if you is connected. have
1: HTTP sessions, then yes, they could do man in the middle. That's the whole point of HTTPS is to detect that situation and give you a big scary warning instead of. Like, no, like if his VPN is sort of like He's the set default gateway, as his gateway. default gateway, and he doesn't have it set up any other the other stuff, then he should be okay. The problem, obviously, when you when your default gateway becomes the VPN, how does your machine your v, the VPN running on your machine find the the, DNA, uh, the dns the, address of the, route, the yeah. well no the route to your house uh, to the, to the vpn endpoint right right if if it, if it needs to use the internet to get to your vpn server and you just switch all your routing to go via the vpn then the packets go going to the vpn software and then it tries to route to your house and yeah
0: i think his core question is how does he know he's safe and not leaking and and do you think those
1: websites would be sufficient they should be I wouldn't say 100%, but uh, if they're, say it's okay, you're... So that different. combined with using it as your default gateway
0: is probably as good as you can get without busting out TCP dumper, or Wireshark on the on the same LAN and starting doing some packet sniffing. <laughs> I mean, that's one way you could go, too, is have another computer and,
1: and experiment, I suppose, and get it on the Wi-Fi and see what uh, it picks it and up. You know, other option is something like, uh, do your web browsing for inside of a VM, where the VM is, you know... Bridged only, you know, uh, it's set up so it's, you know, you get a second network adra- adapter. Yeah, so it's using private networking on the VM and it's... Yeah, and that only bridged with the VPN or whatever so right. that the inside, the VM doesn't know about any internet connection. You could
0: literally bridge the VM to the VPN adapter potentially too. Yeah. yeah.
1: And then yeah, I see what the you're saying. only internet connection that the VM sees is the VPN. Yeah. and it can be, Although, you, you know, you also have to worry about what DNS server you're using on the other side of the VPN. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but if you're worried about the LAN, that would be a, yeah. that would be a pretty solid solution. If you're solution. mostly worried about the Wi-Fi at yeah. Starbucks, yeah. then you <laughs> probably don't need to be so much. But Yeah, you're probably just fine with a straight-up if, if websites you're going to are HTTPS, then the man in the middle is less of an issue. There you go.
0: So uh, that was a great set of questions, you guys. Thank you very much for sending them into the show. We'd love to get your questions out there, so go to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact and choose TechSnap from the drop-down and send in your questions or email them directly in techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com. Storage, networking, security, servers, all that kind of stuff, plus your war stories, anything out in the field out there, we'd love to hear about it as well. Send them all in over there at But at That's all right. With the feedback all done, that means it's time for the TechSnap Roundup. Welcome to the TechSnap Roundup. Yeah, that's what that crazy music means. are the roundup for stories that just didn't fit at the top of the show. Sometimes they're epic, and we want to tell you about them. Some of these links came from our handy subreddit over at TechSnap.reddit.com. This first one makes me smile, not because of the crazy core count or crazy memory count, but because of the graphic at the top of the post. It's a great way to illustrate outage. It's their uptime graph and then a
1: huge... Or load no, average graph. graph? It's a load yeah. average. Yeah. And then a huge well, blank space. Average,
0: but yeah.
1: <laughs> <clears throat> so this is an article from the CSC IT Center for Science yeah. in Finland. And they have a supercomputer there. And the, in the kind of green bars in your graph, that's how many cores are online in their supercomputer cluster. Woo. And uh, the top of that graph, where they pretty much always are, is uh, just shy of 41,000 cores. 41,000, Alan. Cores. Yeah. And then the, uh, the red line is their capacity. And you can see that it all went offline for a little bit. There. Yeah, sure did. Yeah, sure of did. Of course, it was all uh, because of the file system. Uh, oh, so yeah, really? About a month ago, the CSC's high performance computer services suffered the largest unplanned outages had in a very long time. And they had to manually recover <laughs> 1.7 petabytes of files. No. Made up of 850 million files.
0: <laughs>
1: yeah. Something went very, very wrong with their Luster uh, distributed file system. Luster, okay, all right. Uh, and there was some problem, and FSCK fixed most of it, but couldn't fix a couple things, and they kept trying, and then there was a, a bogus I know that was crashing their Linux oh, terminal. Geez. And, oh, jeez. So they were just like, all right, what we're going to do is we're going to make a fresh file system and just move the files over. And uh, if you scroll down a lot, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, you can see there's uh, a the chart here? white and red graph. Yeah, yeah. So you can see... They were copying the files. It was going very well. Things were going do, do, very do. fast. <laughs> you can see it going up sharply. Yes. And then they hit the first user who had millions and millions of tiny files. And the performance just went. <laughs> and all of a sudden, it was going to take weeks uh, to finish the copying operations.
0: Man, that's a bummer. Because
1: the disk they had, they got maybe 3,000 IOPS total. And rest- the restoration process required six IOPS per file. With 850 million files... That was going to take a long time. Yes. So then they tried a bunch of other things, you know, faster RAID arrays and different disks, and they had like a <laughs> Data Warp SSD node, and they tried to use that. And eventually, they decided, let's try a RAM disk because that'll be super fast. Sure, we need but speed. the most amount of RAM they have in any one system is 1.5 terabytes, oh, and we needed all? at least three terabytes of space. Oh, sure, yeah. Uh, so they exported the RAM disk over iSCSI and then created a RAID <laughs> <Yes>. array. Yes. <across laughs> no. <laughs> That is a hilarious concept to me. A ramdisk over variety And I bet people do that all the time, and I've never even yeah. thought of that. <laughs> uh, but they got well over 20,000 IOPS, uh, which, you know, over the network makes sense. But, you know, I, I know NVMe devices can do a lot more than that. Mm. But they're also not three terabytes in size, right? Um, so they had that, and they uh, managed to get their files recovered. Wow, Alan. They, they cover the whole thing. Uh, part of the problem was that Uh, as you might expect they have this slash wrk which is short for work yeah sure so there's this little work directory and people are supposed to only keep temporary files in there Mm -hmm. yeah just toss it in there their documentation and SLA say that that directory can just go away randomly at any time could get deleted yeah everybody's had one of those they don't worry about backing it up or whatever well it turns out everybody keeps all their important files there (laughs) yeah as you would expect. Mm-hmm. Users always keep their files in the wrong place. Yeah, I've seen that every uh, single time. You know, they have these nice project directories over here where we back it up and your files will be fine. Might even have quotas over here, something yeah. like that. Yeah, But nobody copies them over there. Delicate permission so, sets. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Their main mitigation actions are, we will further clarify and raise user awareness of the role of the work directory as a temporary storage space.
0: This is often a problem that I think is actually the
1: symptom of maybe a more complicated setup than it needs well, to be. Part of it is uh, moving data from the work directory to more permanent storage, like archives or the user local storage, will be made more frictionless. Yes. Apparently it's too hard right Exactly. Now. So everybody just uh, uses the dumping ground with 777. Yeah. <laughs> and then the other one was that apparently it wasn't as fast as they were expecting. When some of the copying operations they were seeing were doing like 800 uh, megabits per second, but they have a 10 gigabit network infrastructure. So they were like, why are we not using many gigabits here? They say, uh, the recovery actions are documented and modifications to disaster recovery plans have been made so that a similar future issue can be dealt with much faster and better. And they say, the next procurement and long-term development plans will be taken into account uh, the user needs for reliable storage. So maybe they actually don't have enough storage that's all set up to be reliable. And they have all the scratch space, and people are just using it because there isn't enough permanent storage. Uh, they also considered, um, you know, currently we're self-supporting our Luster FS, but we could buy commercial support from Intel. But doing that requires switching from the—they don't say which version of Linux they're using—but they would have to switch to Intel Enterprise uh, version of Luster. Huh. And doing that in the middle of the lifecycle of their system is just too much work and. They're actually glad that they've now developed all this in-house expertise by dealing with this particular issue. True, that is a that is a genuine upshot. Uh, but they're looking in ways uh, better ways to monitor for data corruption, so they can detect this sooner and maybe deal with it. Uh, they're also looking at file system policy and architecture, like maybe the work directory will actually be sharded and split out, so that it, if there's corruption, it only affects a portion of it instead of all of it. Although, you know, if you have a giant file and you only corrupt part of it probably lost all of it really right uh but yeah the CSC will always uh will frequently remind customers in user guides and training material that slash WRK is not guaranteed and can be erased without notice they <laughs> are going to add this to the message of the day every time you log in they should and, just do it they should just do it every yep. 30 days exactly uh also the policy for the slash projects file system is likely unclear to many users and uh you know, there's likely a lot of critical data there and it should be included in their uh, training materials. Hmm. They also said that the, uh, yeah, other findings, the point-to-point data transfer between different systems was often relatively slow for our current uh, tools. So I think possibly they're using like SSH or something and they're hitting, you know, CPU limits or something and only using like one-tenth of their network bandwidth. They also say they'd like to identify programs and users who create huge numbers of files, like more than one million tiny files, and provide instructions on how they could possibly avoid doing
0: this.
1: (laughs) Or at least have clear instructions or scripts to clean them up afterwards.
0: Hmm.
1: Uh, Smaller numbers of files would make recovery a lot faster. They say uh, communications played a critical role. They're looking at actually adding a dedicated communication person to their disaster recovery team uh, to deal with this Hmm. so that users have a better idea of what's going on.
0: I, you know what? I could all this training they're talking about. All this we'll teach users, we'll tell users, we'll show users. The only way they're going to make that possible is if they actually did have a dedicated person to communicating that constantly. Because that's a, you, there's there's no you could you always have to message that because there's 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 change there's churn. You have to constantly message
1: it. Yep. They also say they would like better tools for collaboration in a crisis. They say information was spread across multiple chat and other tools, mm. and this would really have helped coordinate multiple threads of work if everybody used the same chat system. Uh, so they said, we should agree on a common communication channels in a crisis in the beginning and have all stakeholders there, including managers. Hmm. So, you know, IRC is the best. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> I'm thinking uh,
0: Mattermost. Of course you're thinking IRC. And they, no, they one is thinking Telegram. <laughs> yeah.
1: uh, they also say, having a way to get a quick backstory for people that join the team in the middle of the incident. Oh, interesting. So you, like... They, so they have this timeline of what happened after the fact, but they almost need to maintain it as they're doing as it. As you're bringing people so on that, to help. So that when somebody comes in that yeah. you know on, on stage three of yeah. the of the recovery or whatever, yeah. they can see what's already happened you know, and what's done. The challenge there too, done, Alan, would be your mind. busiest people are going to be the people. Yeah, that you're, you're in the middle of trying to solve the problem. You don't really have time to write the timeline. Exactly. But if you don't, then other people that are going to come in midway through to help you are going to be so far behind. How do they help?
0: Yeah, like you bring them in, but then they can't be brought up to speed because you're too busy solving the problem. That yeah. doesn't work either. Yeah. So working on that. They say
1: the, um, the high-performance computing specialists work contract hours uh, during office hours, and the service level agreement they have for this computer system is also office hours. However, in an exceptional <laughs> yeah. situation like this, an emergency. people may volunteer to work longer hours. Hmm. This needs to be managed to avoid people becoming overloaded. So specifically, if they work overnight for two nights to get the system back online, maybe they should get two days off. <laughs> yeah. They say the disaster task force should agree on how many extra work hours to put in per day, and it would be a good idea to possibly arrange shifts or something. Yeah. You got a plan for yeah. Uh, commandeering a little-used common area space as a war room uh, improved effectiveness in a phase where tight collaboration was required. So taking over the break room and being like – "Yes." <laughs>
0: Yes, that does work. Uh,
1: yeah. There should be a designated space that can be used like this in, for future incidents. It should have real desks, not stand-up meeting room or a coffee area. So, yes, not the break room maybe. But, you know, a real place where people can sit comfortably and work on something for four hours or more. Hmm. Uh, you know, the, hmm. that space doesn't have to be dedicated to it, but it needs to be such that you know, there's an emergency. Sorry, your meeting is canceled. We're taking over the room to fix the computer. Uh, also, they want to improve their monitoring, like monitoring the percentage of free inodes and so on. And they'd like to also to automate their in-memory file system they invented to solve this. Uh, they think it might also be useful for some of the like grand challenges customers they have. Um, and uh, could also be uh, started as a, at any time and as a low-cost safety net versus upgrading their MDS server or having dedicated hardware for it. Hmm. Uh, you know, they so just set up in their slurm thing and just set uh, feature equal more IOPS. <laughs> uh, and also, yes, they said separate the slash wrk into smaller chunks using the distributed namespace feature. Uh, but for that, they'd have to upgrade to Luster 2.8 uh, and they need uh, need to be planned at least six months in advance to do that. Hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting bit of uh, insight into
0: their internal uh, politics. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's a big infrastructure that six months is. That's not unheard of. And there's
1: a lot of important science and you know, yes, yes. lots of people using this computer. They have 41,000 cores. Yeah,
0: actually, in that regard, pretty incredible that they even consider it. <laughs> I love that the Windows 6 months, sure. Okay, Alan, let's shift gears major here and let's talk let's, about... Let's
1: get back to Roundup Speed.
0: Yeah, Roundup Speed. Back up about, we'll pick up speed with Mattel versus Chinese Cyber Thieves. Yes. What's this about? Yes,
1: so uh, Mattel got hit with the fake CEO scam. Mm. So finance officer gets an email claiming to be from the CEO saying hey we have this new vendor in China we need to pay them could you set it up and you know so she checked double checked the rules and it takes two people to authorize something like this so it's like well the CEO and me that'll work uh, and so she wired the three million dollars to China
0: yeah of course and then
1: uh, later that day happened to see the CEO in the hall and asked him he's like oh yeah I did that for you and he's like I didn't tell you to wire three million dollars to anybody and it was like oh <laughs> uh oh <laughs> Uh, luckily, it happened to be a bank holiday for Chinese Labor Day, uh, the day after when the money arrived in China. So, uh, with some swift action, uh, Mattel was able to arrange to have the Chinese police show up at the bank when it opened the next day and freeze the account before the bad guys could get the money out of it. Hmm. And so Mattel managed to actually get their $3 million back. Oh, good. Only because it was a holiday. Psh, well... Otherwise, hey, it would have been gone. There you go. There you go. And then the article goes into you know the U.S. State Department trying to get the Chinese to work harder on stopping this kind of money laundering and so on.
2: Hmm.
0: hmm. So uh, what's this? Uh, what's this? I'm hearing about a Google DDoS prevention tool. The Inquirer is talking about.
1: Yes. So Google is offering uh, certain sites a new, a free DDoS mitigation tool. Basically, Google will sit in front of your website and stop the attacks or absorb the attacks and then forward just the right traffic to you. They're specifically offering this to newspapers and other sites that are exposing corruption of governments and so on, and who may face state-level DDoS attacks to attempt to silence them.
0: I'm not. What I'm not following here is: Would that mean that in order for Google to do this, would all your traffic pass
1: through Google? Yes. Problem. Hmm, that's a lot of delicious, delicious data for Google. Well, it depends. You know, it's only if it's a couple of websites but you know this isn't targeted at big commercial uh, news things this okay. is targeted at you know okay. sites that are going to can you imagine if the one newspaper only one newspaper had the uh edward snowden thing and there was just a constant detail stack against them they could never get their information out right yeah I follow. and, and this is yeah so mm. you know good guy google but i don't know that anybody's going to take them up on that because of that Hmm. And I don't know how quickly it can be set up and how that all works, but it seems like something that would have to be in place ahead of time.
0: I, uh, I've, been, uh, I've been impressed with a lot of the stuff Corey Doctor has been doing recently. He's got a post over on Boing Boing how DRM would kill the next Netflix. Yeah. And how, of course, the W3C could save it. So what's yeah. this about? This looks so fascinating.
1: The, um, the EFS is proposing a DRM non-aggression pact as part of the W3 standard for DRM. So when uh, hmm, okay. you set it up, you would say, you know, hey, Netflix or whatever, would say, we agree not to go after security researchers or people who are just making a compatible technology thing, you know, let you watch Netflix on some device that doesn't normally support Netflix or something, Uh, right? So the DRM has stopped people from copying, but we promise not to use the DRM, the draconian DRM laws in the U.S. that say we can sue anybody for trying to break the DRM if you're just a security researcher trying to find security flaws in the DRM or something, right? You know, like Part of the problem is, so, so DRM isn't the problem here. It's the U.S. law that makes breaking DRM actually illegal. Yeah. That yeah. is the problem. Yeah,
0: and that's a, that's, that is a war that he's and beginning so this to fight. A,
1: yeah, the EFF is proposing a non-aggression pact so that people that implement the DRM would say, we promise to not go after security researchers uh, while at the same time still being able to enforce our DRM. Because mm-hmm. you know, for Netflix, they'd be perfectly happy to not have DRM, but the movie studios insist on it. And they can't get the movies without it, right? They do say that.
0: Right. But then why does all of their own original content that they pay for and own wholly
1: have DRM on it? Because it's easier to do everything the same than do different things, really. I guess so.
0: I mean, iTunes is able but to I, do it. I, iTunes I, is able to sell uh,
1: DRM to non-DRM content in the same interface. Well, it's selling. That's different. I suppose so, yeah. Um. But, yeah, it would be cool if, if maybe you could have... Uh, Maybe one day. H- 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 uh MP4 stream of it, but... Yeah. I no. mean, just because it would make Obviously, it so much definitely- easier. Yes, but, you know, at the same time, Netflix doesn't want their shows to show up on torrent sites. Not that they don't. They do immediately.
0: Like... Immediately, House House of Cards was immediately available, uh, instantly. Uh, Okay, so Google has an engineer who has been going through the USB-C cords and chargers and whatnot on Amazon and trying them out on his USB-C like Nexus and Pixel devices, and he's actually made a dent. Amazon is updating some policies regarding USB Type-C cables because there's been so many. In fact, uh, this guy fried one of his devices with one of these USB-C.
1: So many cheap. Knock-off cables that are not done correctly and can damage your device.
0: You know, and I have been tempted to pick up a device that uses USB-C a few times, and I'm glad I didn't go through this phase of a new standard like this. And it's Mm -hmm. interesting that USB-C has been struck with this. Uh, I'm surprised for it. Well,
1: they, they find a standard, but it doesn't mean that anybody follows it. You know, that's why you have these like logo type things where you like copyright the logo so that if you put the logo on without actually going through their testing, Mm -hmm. they can sue you. They can sue you, But if you're a cheap knockoff Chinese manufacturer, like you literally, you set up a new shell company to make this one cable and then you make a thousand of them, you sell them in bulk to places like Amazon or whatever or people that are just going to sell it on Amazon, then you take the money and you go out of business and then you start another one, right? You don't care if the cable is good or not. Uh, actually, something similar happened to IX. Uh, they, you know, the have you seen their universal charger things they give out at conferences? Uh, yes. Yeah, the green one. Ah, well, I had a blue one, but oh, okay. Um, one of the iPod connectors doesn't actually fit an iPod. It won't actually the go in. The thirty-pin
0: one. Yeah, I, uh, I don't yeah. remember which one. Yeah, because I know it has a thirty. I'm like, wow, how quaint! It has a thirty-pin connector on there.
1: But no, I don't think it's that one. It's it's like a newer one. One of the newer ones doesn't actually fit because. <laughs> Cheap Chinese design. Well, there you go. There you go. And they're like, yeah, that kind of sucks. We've got a lot of them.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah they're, they're fun, you know. but you know what does work is <laughs> the different USB sizes, so that's nice. Yep. Uh, you know, usually it's on like, this show... Hey, <laughs> screw you, Apple guys, anyway. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, they don't have to charge as much as it turns out. Hey, it, we often I, talk my about...
1: Android lasts a lot longer than anybody's iPhone.
0: We often talk about uh, Trend Micro on this show in terms of their research.
1: Yes. But this time... Well, somebody's been doing some research. Google, <laughs> <finding> what, yeah. <laughs> yes. go- Google's been doing a very good tirade against AV vendors and I love it. Trap it feels it. good. It does, doesn't it? That's that my go yeah, for. Yeah. So it. this one I think is a Chrome plugin or something from Trend Micro called Trend Micro Maximum Security. Must be good. Um, and it turns out it exposes a debugging port that anybody can connect to, and the proof of concept will cause it to launch calculator. Calc.exe. Yeah. yeah. Wow. And, uh, yeah. So luckily, uh, Trend Micro very quickly had a, a mitigation for it, although it was pretty funny. So their mitigation was, was like so there's their software, and then there's this third-party software that uh, in the debugging ports actually in that third-party software, not Trend Micro's actual software, or not the part that they actually wrote. They just license anyway. So they're like, what our program will do was listen on the port first, so that when the third-party program tries to launch and listen on this port, it won't be able to. And then we can close the port in our program. Why do they need it to begin with? Well, they don't, but they can't... uh, Oh, they can't modify the other code because they don't know that It's a third party. But it's going to take them longer. Uh, So in order to get a fix out in like a day... This is their workaround. They made it... Their program steal the port first and block it. And then... Over time they'll so, be able to modify the other program and make it not have that port.
0: I want to make sure I'm following you. Um, a a well established security firm who specializes in cybersecurity and antivirus protection sublicensed a third party's technology, integrated it into their Chrome plugin, and didn't bother to audit or verify the functionality of this code or that, that the, the debugging uh, developmental mode wasn't still turned on, yeah. And tr- this is Trend Micro, you're telling yes. me. Okay, okay. Just well, want to make sure it, I got that.
1: If you follow the Google series, they've hit every AV vendor. Yeah. I don't think anybody's got away <laughs> yeah, without no, having a mistake. Yeah, It's um, like, you know, just because they sell antivirus doesn't mean they don't make the same mistakes everybody else does.
0: Right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and uh, speaking of scammers, uh, the U.S. federal courts are warning of aggressive scammers.
1: Yes. And they're not talking so about Trend ones, Micro. Actually, this one is like a real-world scam, so... They like Chubby has dressed as like fake US Marshals, being like, Hey, you uh, missed your jury duty. So, yeah, uh, you're going to jail unless you pay us this big fine. <laughs> and just getting money from people. Bop, 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 bop. That's all it takes, everybody. Hmm. <laughs> I have for this. Yeah. Definitely. We're checking out if you see something like this. Problem right solved. Okay, back to Trend Micro,
0: Alan. Back to Trend Micro. Let me get that door for you. Remote. What's that? This one's research, though. Yeah, that's right. Your remote root vulnerability in their uh, door controllers.
1: Yeah, HID makes these door controllers. Okay. So, okay. Uh, these are like, you see these at like colleges, sure. and airports, and hospitals. You know, the little card reader yeah, yeah. you tap the card against and unlocks the door. Yep. So, there's two parts there's the card reader that decides, and then it sends a command to the door thing that unlocks the door and opens it or whatever. Well, the newer versions of these are networked so that the guy in the security office can remotely open a door or something. Right. Like uh, when I was teaching um, my very first week there, I didn't have my own access card yet because they were still making it. And so uh, the guy from the security office would have to come down and unlock the door for me. Now they got it so they can do that from their desk. Great. Right. Except for it means somebody else who, if, if, if that's not VLANed off properly and somebody else mm. gets on the network, they can make any door just absolutely close and yeah. shut and lock and can lock people inside and yeah. all kinds of stuff. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, great research on that.
0: I bet that's a common problem at hotels too, knowing yep. what I now know about hotel networks, having seen it. <laughs> yeah. Them. Uh, okay. So what, what's going on in Romania? Romania is jailing an ex-minister over Microsoft licenses.
1: Like yes. So what happened was they made it, uh, Microsoft offered Romania a deal. Yeah. Okay. We'll <laughs> give you forty-seven <47% laughs> percent off oh. of all your licenses for if you use. Only Microsoft Office at all hmm. your schools and public institutions for the next five years. I guess so the
0: Libre must have been too expensive.
1: Um, so the minister who set up the deal embezzled the entire discount, and the government paid the full price, and he just kept 47% of the money. That is – that's – you <laughs> know just what? He kept the discount a secret and kept the cash. I bet he's not
0: the first guy to cook that one up. That's That guy, I bet that's yeah, a thing. Yeah, so
1: uh, him and, like, four other people have, uh <laughs> going to jail and being fined, like, $10 million apiece.
0: And... <laughs> Meanwhile, you buy an app f- from the App Store for 99 cents. So, yep. there you have it. Sidestepper allows for a man in the middle between iOS devices and the uh, MDM tool, which is the uh, management tool.
1: Yeah, it's the management tool for enterprises. So that if you have a big company and you issue everybody in your company iPhones... And your goof, but uh, it provides you tools so that you can push software on them and and lock down what they can do on the phone and stuff. Yeah, but has lots of holes as we've seen uh, previously. You know, with things like Xcode Ghost and yeah, you can jump. I mean, you'd
0: have would you have to be? Wow, you'd have to be on the same network though as the MDM server
1: to Uh, do that, right? Necessarily? Oh no, I guess not. No one. Yeah, and
0: I guess once it's set up and connected to the server, you, you you're managed. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. yeah. That, well, okay. So, yeah,
1: uh, this allows a man-in-the-middle attack so that you can be like, hey, I'm your MDM server. Please do this. Yeah. So. And uh, I, I'm, a, I'm loving there, there'll be a, like a locker for phones. You'd have to know. Can the, you imagine that? Your, your phone, crypto-lockered? Yeah. Oh, jeez. Well, or even just replacing the lock screen or something. So it's like, oh, you would like to use your phone? That, th- wait, didn't we talk about, didn't we cover Android malware that was doing that? I don't think so. I maybe. think that I think that has been uh, a story. But but I, I don't know. I'm i th- I'm thinking one interview with like Apple Pay. It was like put your thumb here and Apple Pay me and then you can use your phone. in app purchase to unlock your in-app purchase, unlock, Apple, your, yeah, it's in-app purchase <laughs> unlock your
2: phone.
0: I love it. Uh, okay. So speaking of mobile devices, this is why I think ad block is a sure thing on mobile, because uh there's an interesting stat over business insider, and this is I mean, they make money on ads, so this is not good for them. Ads on news sites, and that's them gobble up as much as seventy nine percent of a user's mobile data plan.
1: That's if not possible. Only ever went to news. Like, I think I yeah. mean seventy nine percent of all traffic from the news that's, site
0: That sounds possible. Is
1: yes. they Yeah, ads. I think it's
0: only. Uh, but they actually say later on that it actually could be anywhere you know, between ten and fifty percent of the overall data plan. It's well, it really depends <laughs> yeah. how many videos somebody yeah. watches on their phone. Ad blockers not, for like, mobile are almost a must,
1: though, don't you think? Well, like, I think, um, well, it depends. If I'm on Wi-Fi, but mostly I would do it just to make the things load faster, right? And, yeah. But And save my battery. Right. Uh, but, yeah. Also, it depends on how, what you count exactly. Like, uh, See, they're counting JavaScript and ads separately, but do they mean, does ads include the JavaScript from the ads? Uh, but also, like, Google Analytics... I consider that kind of more on the ad side than on the website side. As yeah. Well, right functionality for the website. So
0: their data was by done by loading full pages, pages without ads, pages without ads, or JavaScript elements separately to see how they perform.
1: Yeah. I don't know that they're... Hmm. Their process was very good. For you them. know,
0: this is but interesting because Google's working on Amped, right? Uh, Facebook has their feed that's super fast for news. Apple has Apple News that's all about like getting you
1: the same kind of news content. Apple, but, like iOS, had an ad blocker by default mm-hmm. on the newest one, right? That mm-hmm. was a big uproar. I don't know. I don't use Apple. Yeah, there's an iOS built in. There's a the
0: APIs to the OS are built in, and there's plugins. There's apps that you get in the App Store to enable it. Uh, and there's rumors that maybe coming to other ones too, and I, I I think it makes the case for maybe why you would really want to use an ad blocker and why if it's more important on mobile than it is on desktop even.
1: Well, yeah, especially if you are you know using a lot of your data plan. I don't think outside of when I was in another country and using more than usual, or you know, at a conference or something. I don't know that I've ever used more than 100 megabytes a month in mobile data. I don't tend
0: to use a lot myself either because I tend, to, I tend to load everything on Wi-Fi, and then I'm running off of local storage when I'm mobile most of the time. Okay, Operation Blockbuster, unraveling the long thread of the Sony attack.
1: Yes. So this is a uh, slightly over-stylized uh, bit of research into the Sony hack. Holy is, shit, this isn't a comic about- book?
0: This is, this is a research paper? <laughs> yeah, I know. Wow, you guys, ch- go check this one out in the show notes. I, the first couple of pages, you'd literally think this is a comic book. Yeah, it is very stylized.
1: Yep. But uh, you know, if you were curious about some of that Sony stuff, people have been researching it the whole time since it happened. You know what? I might, re- I might actually,
0: I might actually, I'm, I'm going to save this uh, to my read later key right now, actually, because yep. that would be really good.
1: Thanks uh, for actually. Uh, JT found that. Oh, cool. cool! I actually sent it in a while ago, and I didn't get through all those links the one time, and I was looking for a couple extra for this episode, and I was like, how did I miss this? Look at this. this yeah, is that faster. is huge. So I just I just saved that to my read later feed, because that, yes. that is, it's a
0: 58-page monster.
1: But, uh, yep. I mean, it literally. <laughs> I didn't have time to read the whole thing, so I don't know what their conclusions were in the end. Yeah,
0: but. maybe I'll find out.
1: Okay, Uh, so I
0: wanted mm -hmm. to end on a funny tweet. It's a little visual heavy, so I apologize to our audio listeners. The tweet is linked, though. I'll try to describe it once I reveal it, though. Uh, And I loved it. It's uh, it's by Ty Bowser. Yep, that about sums it up. How Wi-Fi Works. And uh, it is a GIF animation of pedestrians walking through a very fast, nonstop moving intersection.
1: Well, it's an intersection, but it's like a star shape. It's, like, it's not a your regular like, two roads intersecting. Right. There are like one, two, three, four, five roads intersecting at weird angles. And
0: they're all driving at once, and they're not stopping. They're not yes. hitting each other, but they're not stopping while pedestrians
1: are crossing the street. Yes, and the motorcycles are turning and... You know, <laughs> that's great. I see some crazy, but yeah, there's yeah. just like people yeah. walking. You know in what? In cars zooming everywhere. It's, I'm gonna I'm good.
0: gonna retweet it right now, and so you can go check out twitter.com/slash scroll ways back in my feed, and you'll you'll see it in my feed if you're curious. Yep. So there you go. And of course, you can find links to everything in the show notes at jupiterbroadcasting.com. Just look for 261. And uh, that is where you will find all of our goodies. Alan, is there anything else we need okay, to cover this the, week?
1: The chat room points out that in, in reality, there, the, all those things would have been smashing into each other and the yes. packets would have to be reset.
0: Unless it was self-driving cars and the people walking across the street were robots, then it could possibly work.
1: Right, and but if it was supposed to be Wi-Fi, then oh, oh. signals would be crashing into each yes. other. <laughs> yes. But yes. if you <laughs> wouldn't die, you would just right. respawn and try to right, send yeah. them. <laughs> Yes,
0: over and over. Um, all right, so I think that is the end of the business. Hey, Alan, Somebody you know we make like a frogger
1: of packets trying to get through his other packets or Zoom.
0: We should mention we want people to join us uh, for the fourteenth a little early at uh, eleven a.m. Pacific, which is
1: uh, that'll be two p.m. Eastern. So that'll be <laughs> sixteen hundred UTC. Yeah, we're gonna be doing another double. It's cray cray, you guys.
0: Uh, and so we need your emails. No,
1: no. 1,800 UTC. Yes, yes, 1,800 UTC. So
0: we definitely need your email, so please do send those in your questions. We definitely need those. And also, I invite you to hang out. It's a lot of live show because it's not just the shows themselves that you watch on the download, but all the stuff in between when we're switching between shows, all the shenanigans while we rush to prepare, all that kind of stuff. Except for this week. Holy smokes.
1: Super I Yeah, uh, I had, I had uh, some free time after BSD Now. Wow. Because uh, I was working on getting my internet... Uh, so... As part of the scale engine upgrades, we had to change out the switch at the meet-me room in the data center that connects all of our different uplink uh, bandwidth providers and happens to be also where the connection from my house gets linked up. (laughs) Yeah. So there was going to be downtime of my internet. Sometime after 4.30... But it ended up being like 6.30. Mm. So I didn't know exactly when it would be, but I had yeah. to be standing by ready for it. Yeah. So I was just working on the show notes while I was waiting. That's I nice. And ended up writing the entire shows. for That both. worked
0: out great. It was great. Yeah. Uh, so there you have it. That is the end of uh, 260. And we have now crested in the 260s. I think the next block of numbers I'm looking for are the 280s for some reason. And 277 will be a good one. I'm looking forward to that. But, uh, yeah. At 286. <laughs> yeah. Yes, Exactly. Uh, so techsnap.reddit.com is where you can go to submit content or, uh, or uh, suggestions, but do please send us your emails, so that way we have them uh, for our uh, double next time we get together. Okay, everybody, thanks so much for tuning this week's episode of TechSnap, and we'll see you right back here next week.